Sick Boy Podcast is a health and comedy show about what it's like to be sick. Wait, is that right? How can illness be funny? You'd be surprised. Okay. Sick Boy is hosted by me, Brian Stever. And me, Taylor McGilvery. And myself, Jeremy Saunders. Come on in and join us to melt your heart, learn something fascinating, and bust a belly laugh. Trust us, you'll be glad you did. You can find Sick Boy on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your pods. This is a CBC Podcast. I was so excited to talk to Rick Rubin because here's a guy who works with the greatest artists of our time, your Adele's, your Metallica's, your Jay-Z's, and he is of the belief, the firm belief, that anybody, you and me, everyday people, we are as much artists as them. And he has some tips on how to unlock your inner creativity and some incredible stories. Rick Rubin is coming up. Plus, Barbara Brandon Croft has broken down barriers for black women in comics, and it makes sense because her dad broke down barriers before her. She'll tell you what happened when she got her comic, Where I'm Coming From, in the mainstream newspaper syndication and the struggles she faced in order to do just that. That's coming up. I'm Tom Power. You are listening to Q. A lot of DMs and emails the past little while wondering when Rick Rubin is going to be on our show. And uh, I get it because Rick Rubin is not just one of the greatest living music producers, but he's also a guy who thinks really deeply about art. If you don't know Rick Rubin, here's the brief bio. He starts out Def Jam recordings from his uh, dorm room at NYU. The record label becomes like a really important hip-hop record label, launches the careers of this guy. LL Cool J is hard as hell. Battle anybody, I don't care, you tell. I excel, they all fail. Gonna cocktail double LL Cool J, Run DMC, Beastie Boys. Then he starts working with kind of everybody. Metallica, Adele, the Red Hot Chili Peppers. I don't ever want to feel like I did that day. Take me to the place I love. Johnny Cash, Kanye West, Lady Gaga, Kesha, Jay-Z, Green Day, the Dixie Chicks. And what's interesting about Rick Rubin is that he's done all this without being formally trained. He doesn't know how to read music. He doesn't know how to operate a mixing board, really. He's kind of this, like, barefoot dude with a long beard and a white T-shirt who believes in his soul that everybody has creativity inside of them and his job is to unlock it. So he has a new book out. It's called The Creative Act, A Way of Being. And I talked to him a little bit about translating the act of creativity for people like you and me. Um, But because we're both meditators, I wanted to start there. Here's my conversation with Rick Rubin. How are you? Very well. How are you, sir? I'm not doing too bad. I I, I tell you this now. I almost skipped my meditation today of all days. You know, I woke up and I was a bit busy. And then I remembered I was going to talk to you. So about an hour ago, I kind of went into a room here at the CBC and, and locked the door and got 20 minutes in. And I'm, I'm all the better for it. So I have you to thank for that. Have you, have you done your practice today? I have not done my practice today. And I want to thank you for your practice today because we'll share this energy together. So between us, we're in, good, we're in a good place, I think. I want to start off with the premise of your new book. It's about how we're all artists, that we're all creators But the artists you've worked with have, like, inspired millions and millions of people. They've sold millions and millions of records. They've, you know, toured all over the world. Do they have something different, like some special quality 
that the rest of us don't have? No. It's the same for all of us. We all, we all are creative beings. We all have our own experience. And then based on our own experience, find ways to share that experience so others can get a glimpse of what we're experiencing. And when something connects, it doesn't mean it's necessarily better than something that doesn't connect. It has more, there, there are so many factors at play with something connecting. It could be the timing. It could be the movement. It could be a certain aspect of it. It could be the cosine. Who, who was the person that turned you on to that person? Like for me, had I not been born where I was born and go to school where I went to school, my career wouldn't have been the same career. The, the, the fact that I was in New York during the birth of hip hop allowed me to find my relationship to that music and then f find my way to share it. Whereas had I gone to the University of Chicago, which was just as realistic, my life would have been very different. Let's stay on your circumstances for a moment. So for people who don't know your story as well, I mean, you, you, you grow up um, in New York in the 80s. You're playing in, in punk You're playing in punk bands. You're going to hip-hop clubs in, in the nighttime. What music was sort of soundtracking your life then? The first music that really spoke to me at a very young age, three, four, five, six, Beatles, The Monkees, The British Invasion... That was the first music that spoke to me as a, as a small child. And then in junior high school, it was the hard rock of the day. So that would have been Aerosmith, Ted Nugent, ACDC. Other kids in my school liked The Doors and Led Zeppelin, but they were the music that they adopted from their older brothers and sisters. Because I'm an only child, I didn't have older siblings turning me on to the music that came, you know, three years before, five years before, seven years before. So I tend, my taste tended to be more immediate in the moment of what was going on. And the same when punk rock came along, that really took me, took me away when I heard... Um, Particularly the Ramones. The Ramones was the one that that I most loved. And then when I went to college, or maybe even then, already in high school, hip hop started happening, and I started listening to that as well. I tend to listen to music in a phase, and when I find something I like, I want to hear everything you know that's remotely like it to see, is this a standalone thing, or is this a whole movement? Ask a lot of questions, spend a lot of time in record stores, old, uh, used record stores, any, any place that I could learn anything about it. But this does not sound to me like someone who then, when you famously start your own record label, when you start Def Jam out of your, at your dorm room in New York, this doesn't sound to me with all respect like someone who knew a lot about what music production was. Nothing. I, I, I didn't know what it was at all. I just knew I like this song. I like the energy of this record, but I didn't know anything about the technical aspect of it. And I didn't know what a producer's job was. I didn't look, I didn't read the credits that deeply. 
I knew who the artists were and I was always looking for the artists. I, I remember thinking the MC5 album cover is really cool and the early Iggy and the Stooges albums were really cool. Oh, and they're both on Elektra Records. Maybe there's some combination with like the art and the taste being related to Elektra Records. But that's as far as it went was the um, more of the, the style of it and the taste of it. But things like production credits or engineering, that never was a concern. Do you know what it is now? Like if I asked you what you do as a music producer now, could you, could you tell me? I can tell you what I do, and it's a case-specific. I could tell you on any of the records I've worked on what I did on them. We got one of them. Can we, can we listen to one of them? Sure. I can't. I mean, it's so good, I can't even... I can't even... I can't believe it exists. That's um, the, the Beastie Boys in No Sleep Till Broken. Can you give me a gen general, like, how you describe what you do and apply it to what we just heard? It's radically different from, even from song to song, much less artist to artist. So on, on what we just heard... It started, the idea started with the concept of No Sleep Till Brooklyn, which was Adam Yauch's idea. It wasn't Adam Yauch's idea to make it a song, but he had like a mixtape that he made that had written on it, No Sleep Till Brooklyn. And I said, that's a really good song title. That'd be a good song. And he's like, yeah, it'd be cool. And then I wrote the, programmed the drums, played the guitar, made the track, I did that all on my on my own. Usually I would work on my own because I didn't really know what I was doing. Still don't know what I'm doing. So I do a lot of experimentation until I get something that's interesting to me. And then when something's interesting, then I'll I'll call in whoever I'm collaborating with. Unless I'm collaborating with, with which more now it's more collaborating with the artist right from the beginning. So it's it's different now than it was then. So in that case, that's how that happened. My understanding of you through reading this book and just through through doing a bunch of research is that oftentimes you would see yourself as, I mean, very famously, which became a meme for a while, you, you described to Anderson Cooper, you know, that like, I don't have any formal music training. I, I, I wouldn't be able to be great at, at operating a, a board. I'm really good at, or I'm really good at using my taste and really use it. You're know, really good at, at the kind of clearing distractions out from my mind and ideally from the artist's mind so that they can make the most honest art possible. And then that's sort of what I thought coming into this interview. And then you, you do tell me there that like I, I built the track. I helped write, I helped write the words. So, so that stuff is still there in your, or can be there in your production toolbox. It can be, and it was more there then than it is now just because of the nature of the artists I work with. I don't make that many, I don't make very many hip-hop records at all. And in those days, a hip-hop producer made the music and the rappers rapped on the music. So it's what was called for in that case. But then even with like with LL Cool J, he just wrote the words and he gave me often words and words on a topic and then I would pick out the ones that I thought worked best together and arrange them into a song. Sitting 
And that was different because in, in, with the Beasties, I wrote a lot of lyrics. Then with Public Enemy, I signed them, but they were what they were doing was so self-contained and interesting. Most of what my job was was just saying, yes, this is great. Do more of this. You know, I might have a suggestion on a mix how to make it sound more aggressive or more something, but for the most part, that was a self-contained unit. And, and I don't think one's better than the other. It's just whatever's needed. And some artists come to me with finished songs and ask me to help them what is the, figure out what the record's going to sound like. Others come to me with a blank, you know, a blank slate, just like, what do we do? Others come to me uh, where it's a band and they have songs and we, they want to change the arrangements or improve them. It's, it's very much of a case-by-case, case, case of Johnny Cash. It was really selecting songs for him to do. For the most part, that's that's what that was, and then getting the good performances. I love that you brought up Johnny Cash there because it's often said that you were responsible for resurrecting his career. By the early 90s, he'd been dropped by his record label, by Columbia. He was playing dinner theaters. He didn't really believe in himself, but you saw something in him, and you got him to record some new songs. And... One of the ones that kind of takes over the world is this one. It's his cover of the Nine Inch Nails song, Hurt. I hurt myself today To see if I still feel I focus on the pain The only thing that's real Tell me how that collaboration with Johnny Cash happened. At that point in time, almost everything I produced was by a new art, either a first or second album artist. And there, everybody was young. I was young. Everybody was young. And I was curious in the success, because we had a lot of success right from the beginning. And I was curious, is this a phenomena of this works because it's new artists and we're doing something new or does this apply to a grown-up artist it was really a hypothetical question that i had myself i i'm curious and then i thought about who are the different grown-up artists who are significant artists and who may not be doing their best work or may not have been doing their best work for a long period of time to, te to test these ways of thinking, because it really is. It's, it's not a musical style. It's a way of looking at the problem to solve. What's the most interesting thing we can do? So I was curious for myself, and the first person I thought of was Johnny Cash. And you could have it all At that stage in his career, you know, its audiences weren't looking for more Johnny Cash. They had, they were happy with what they had. They weren't looking for new music. They didn't really want to see him on TV again. If there's one thing I know about you, it's that the idea of an audience at all, the idea of like my impact as a listener 
to the music that you make is not really on your mind, right? Correct. The, 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 the expression is the audience comes last. And, uh, and I really mean that. And what's funny about it is the audience comes last in service to the audience. It's not that we don't care about the audience. It's that if we want to make the best thing we can, we can't care about the audience. And then when we've made it, then we start thinking about, okay, how does this, how do we share this with them? Because the audience only knows what has come before and we're making something new. So you'll always be comparing it to a past work if you're doing it based on what the audience thinks, either a past work of yours or a past work of someone else's. It'll always be, they like this in the past, so let's do that. Whereas if you're making something new or new for you, that's the exciting part is like, what? what's exciting? And if it's exciting to you, maybe it's exciting to them too. I will say my long career has been a testament to me making music that purely for myself and maybe something I'm excited to play for a close friend. That's it. Never considering past that. And for whatever reason, it has, it has spread past that. Now, I'm not saying that will happen for everybody, but I'm saying your best chance of it happening is that because it's authentic. You know at least one person really believes in it, you. Whereas if you're making it with someone else in mind, you don't necessarily believe in it. You're, sec you're second-guessing yourself for someone else, and you don't know what they think, and you can't know what they think. So it's, it's, um, it's a pragmatic uh, method to focus on only on what you feel, even further to fight to protect it against all of the expert voices around you telling you otherwise. That's a key piece. And again, not because the expert voices aren't on your side. It's not that. They're, they're experts in what their experience was. It's not your experience and it's the past. Even if the past is last week, it's not your experience. There's no part of you when you're listening to, when you're putting together Walk This Way, when you're taking like Aerosmith and Run DMC in this like amazing, like first, like big collaboration, one of the first big collaborations of, of, of hard rock and hip hop. There's no part of you that's sitting in the studio listening back to it going like, everybody is going to love this. This is going to blow up. Run DMC didn't like it. <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean? Like it was a, uh... The album was done without Walk This Way on it. I listened to the album and felt like there's more to do. First of all, Run DMC were the biggest rap group in the world, my favorite group, the best group. And now I'm in this position of I run this, this successful rap label already, still maybe it's two years old, but it's a, a successful rap label in a world of not successful rap labels. So I would get to hear what people thought about rap music and even the people who were wooing us and wanted to work with us, they didn't view hip hop as music. They thought it was something else. So they didn't understand it at all. And I felt like there's a disconnect where I know this is music and the people who make it know it's music, but the the main, the, the, so many people, even experienced smart people in the music business don't know it's music. And I thought, is there some way to bridge this gap? Is there some way? It's like a, a let, like to, to 
explain it, to explain this is actually music. And Walk This Way was the idea. When I presented it to Run and D, they loved the idea of using the beat. So the track, they loved the track for Walk This Way, but they wanted to write their own words because they'd never done, there were no cover songs in rap at this point in time. And I said, the whole purpose of this exercise, it's to, it's to do the Aerosmith song because it's already a rap song. It's written as a rap song. If you do this, then all of the people who think rap music isn't music, maybe they'll understand. That was the idea. And the idea of it being a hit was not at all. It was, it was an afterthought, but it was more of a, an experiment, like with the Johnny Cash thing. It, it was like, it wasn't, in this case, it wasn't an experiment to see if it would work. It was an experiment to see if this connected the dots so people understood what hip-hop was, not for it to be commercially successful. Some artists that you've worked with, Lady Gaga, James Blake... They're classically trained musicians, or at least they have like a great knowledge of music theory. And you've said that the reason you are good at what you do is because you aren't trained. It's because you have a, a beginner's mind, that you have like a childishness about the way you approach music. Can you talk to me a little bit more about that? It's, it's staying true to ourselves. Being in the world and growing up and going to school, it gets taken out of us. We, we learn to behave by society's norms and to repress our feelings and to repress our urges and repress our ideas that might not be the same ideas as everybody else. A child doesn't do that. A child is interested in what the child is interested in. I have a five-year-old son. He's going to become six years old tomorrow. And I was thinking if we went to the Grand Canyon, I've never been to the Grand Canyon. I've always wanted to see the Grand Canyon. And I'm imagining if I went with him to the Grand Canyon, one of two things could happen. We could both look at the Grand Canyon and go like, wow, look at how big the canyon is. Or I could do, wow, look at how big the canyon is. And he could sit on the floor and pick up a rock and say, wow, look how cool this, this rock is. To me... Missing the Grand Canyon, this is what we're here for. He's interested in what he's interested in. That's more pure. I'm looking for the thing that I'm told is interesting to me. He's experiencing the world, and whatever draws him, draws him. And it's true, and it's real. And it's not what we're supposed to like. And it's not what we're supposed to think. He just, it's the way he came in. It is hardwired. Now, again, hopefully over the course of his life, that doesn't get removed. A beautiful perspective there from Rick Rubin. More with Rick Rubin coming up, but I want to play a Canadian artist uh, that Rick Rubin produced. This is Neil Young and Love Earth. Love Earth, and your love comes back to you. Such an easy thing 
from the birds in the sky to the fishes deep in the sea. It's kind of like a folky doo-wop that is Neil Young and Love Earth from his new record, World Record, produced by Rick Rubin, my guest on the show today. Uh, more from Rick coming up. But also, speaking of groundbreakers, Barbara Brandon Croft is here, one of the most important black comic artists ever, and she's looking back on how she accomplished what she did. That's coming up on Q. I'm calling out to you. Hi, I'm Jesse Crookshank. Jesse Crookshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl. Let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout. Because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. Last dance with Mary Jane. One more time to kill the like if you do a sketch and you think this is cool, this is going to make a great painting, and then you make the painting and you spend a lot of time on the painting, you might refer back to the sketch, and it's not unusual to say, you know what, the sketch captures something the painting doesn't capture. That's uh, a beautiful way of looking at the world, even if you're not an artist. That just because you put like so much effort into something, it doesn't mean it's better than the original idea that you had. I'm Tom Power. You're listening to Q. We're in the middle of my conversation with Rick Rubin, one of the greatest record producers ever. I mean, the Beastie Boys, Lana Del Rey, Adele, Johnny Cash, Run DMC, Tom Petty, who you just heard. His new book is called The Creative Act, A Way of Being. And it's not like a memoir of the records he produced. It's more about his approach to life, his approach to creativity. And he told me this great story about how not knowing too much about music theory, he doesn't really know anything about music theory, he doesn't really know how to play an instrument really well, and how that has helped him out with the song you just heard. Take a listen to this. Is that why in Mary Jane's Last Dance you picked that riff? Because the story is, if I'm not mistaken, that Tom, Tom Petty sent you a bunch of songs, and part of what he sent you was sort of, he was playing around a little bit, and something that he might have tossed off and ignored you sort of heard and said that might be that might be it. Is that what we're talking about here? Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, exactly. Exactly. I just listened without I knew Tom wrote five new songs and he was sending me a recording of five new songs. What do I think? And I listened to the five new songs and honestly in that moment in time for whatever reason none of those songs were like that's what we've been waiting for. Yet between a couple of, you know, maybe song three and song four, the opening guitar riff of Mary Jane was there just as like uh, checking if the guitar was in tune before playing the next song. And I heard that and it just felt like, oh, whatever that is, I want to hear the song that follows that. I want to hear where that goes. She grew up in Indiana town, had a good looking mom. That was the most interesting thing to me. It happens sometimes even to this day where an, an artist will bring in something they've already recorded for me and we listen to it together. 
and I'll say, okay, the, the, what's most interesting to me about this is this part of the song. Maybe this part of the song is really the whole song. Or maybe there's another part to write that isn't here that goes with that, that together is going to make this interesting new thing. And then sometimes they'll say, oh, cool, let me try that. And sometimes like, no, that's not how the song goes. Like, okay. You know, it's like, I, it's, uh, I don't feel like I know the right way. I have, I have a way that occurs to me, but I'm open to go on any journey. And they're like, oh, what about if we do it this way? And if they have a very different suggestion, I want to hear that. I want to hear different possibilities and be surprised by what I hear. Before we go, and you've been very generous with your time, and I, I, I do appreciate it, are there still creative challenges that you are, are working through? Every time I go to the recording studio or I'm working on film projects now, every time we're working on the book, every step of the way is a, a process of discovery. And sometimes it's a bad day. Try a bunch of stuff. Nothing really works. Enough of those happen in a row. It gets disheartening. And then other times... Just when you're um, not paying attention, all of a sudden you realize something like, oh, that's really good. That's really good. And that's the reason that it becomes addictive is that we know we don't have control of it. And when that spark happens, our biggest part in it is being able to say, there it is. That's it. But what, what's the lesson there for someone listening to this who's not making a record like you are, who's not making a podcast like I am? The person who, who is hearing that, like what's the one thing, not to distill everything we're talking about here, but like what's the, maybe even just an example. Like what's one thing based on what you just told me that they can add to their day to be – to access the creativity that might already be inside them? I would say to not equate putting more time or effort into something – with making it better. I'm not saying don't put more time or effort into it. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying because you put more time and effort into it, that doesn't mean it's better. You've heard over the course of because you, you're um, working with people who make music, the idea of, oh, the demo was so good, but the record didn't live up to the demo. That's a standard story you hear in the record, in the record industry. And I don't want that to ever happen. And, and I don't have an idea that because I either spent more money or more time or, or more thought or had better ideas that that's better than the initial moment where a doodle popped out that was interesting enough to make me want to work harder on it, that maybe the doodle is the final. Again, it's not always, but it's helpful to consider, look back. Look back at where in the tree branches of the growth of it, what was the last time it was getting better? Something actually interesting Bono said to me about being on tour. He said every night, and I'm thinking, they've been on tour forever. They do these long tours. They play essentially the sh same show every night. And, and I assumed it's like a Broadway play. They do the same show. And he said, what do you think of the show tonight? And I said, I, I like this. I didn't like this. And he's like, I said, why? It's like you do the same show every night. And he's like, the shows are either always getting better or they're always getting worse. And if they're getting worse, we need to change it. And if they're getting better, we need to keep doing it. That's beautiful. Rick, uh, such a joy to talk to you um, and spend some time talking about this with you. I, I'm, I'm grateful to you. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you so much for reading the book. 
Are you kidding me? Like talking about meditation and talking about presence and talking about records and talking about music and talking about how <laughs> being reassured that it's okay if I don't know what I'm doing. Uh, it's, it's a dream interview for me to get a chance to talk to Rick Rubin. His book is called The Creative Act, A Way of Being, and it's out now. Let's listen to one of those early big Rick Rubin productions. This is uh, LL Cool J and Rock the Bells. LL Cool J is hard as hell. Battle anybody, I don't care, you tell. I excel, they all fail. Gonna cocktail double L, must rock my bells. I've been waiting and debating for oh so long. Still starving like Marvin for a Cool J song. If you cried, I thought I died, you definitely was wrong. It took a From 1985, that is LL Cool J and Rock the Bells, produced by my guest today, Rick Rubin. So speaking of groundbreakers, let's talk a little bit about Barbara Brandon Croft. Before Barbara Brandon Croft, there were very few black cartoonists with comics in like your big syndicated newspapers, like your Charlie Brown family circus newspapers. Not to mention there were very, very few black women. Then Barbara comes along with her comic strip, Where I'm Coming From, which brought black women's perspectives to the mainstream press in North America, and it ran from 1989 to 2005. If you didn't read the comic, you should still know about Barbara because her story is about more than that. It's about perseverance. It's about sticking to your vision in the face of racism and doubt. And it's the story, ultimately, of just a great artist. There's a new retrospective of her work out through the publisher, Drawn and Quarterly. And uh, I got to talk to Barbara Brandon Croft about her life. And we started out talking about her dad, who was also this groundbreaking cartoonist. Here's our conversation. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's it's a pleasure to have you. Listen, before we get going, I was hoping we could talk about your lineage a little bit because your dad was a, a famous cartoonist, right? Yes, yes. My dad, Brumsick Brandon Jr., did a comic strip called Luther, and he was one of the pioneer black cartoonists. He made it into the mainstream press in uh, 1969, and he, his strip lasted until 1986. Did you do you have an idea that you were growing up with like a, a famous e dad? Um, yeah, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> but I mean, in the sense that you you know what your uh, friends' parents do and all that. And my my dad did a comic you know strip, and it was also in the newspaper where we lived. So it was new. You know, I grew up on Long Island, so it was Newsday, Long Island Newsday. So that was kind of telling, you know, that my dad was this cartoonist. That was different. Yeah. It was and but did you know he was groundbreaking? That didn't strike me, I don't think, at the time. You know, in hindsight, certainly when I had a better scope of the world and such, I could see, I knew that he was. I've I've had um people tell me that like, you know, say if their their fathers or their mothers were famous musicians or their fathers or their mothers were famous, you know, um actors or something like that. When they when they go to them and they say, "Hey dad, hey mom, I want to be an actor." There's a bit of terror in the heart of the parent. <laughs> was there any of that with your dad? You know, I'm very fortunate. There was not that. Honestly, I think um I was I went to Syracuse. To, I was in their uh their VPA, Visual and Performing Arts School. And there were so few black 
kids in VPA. And I felt like I was very fortunate that I had a parent who was an artist who was behind me in following my path down art. I didn't know what it was going to be. I didn't know it was going to be cartooning. But it's not that often that you get somebody or your parents that are going to support you in um, in your goals when it's something artistic, you know? I was fortunate in that sense. Uh, it's worth saying that as an adult, you don't just inherit your father's comic strip. You, you, you make your own. Uh, tell yeah. me about um, where I'm coming from. Tell me about the vision for it and what it was when you dreamt it up. Well, um, I was asked to dream it up, which was nice. Somebody said, can you, can, can you come <laughs> always, up with a comic strip? Always good when someone asks you to dream something up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I was asked to do it for um, a black woman's magazine. It was a, an up-and-coming magazine that looked to rival Essence at the time. It was very polished. It was nice. And um, the editor-in-chief there was like, you have a sense of humor, you draw. And I, you know, I had only seen my dad draw all my life. So I had, I had a real life role model right there in my house, you know. So when I was asked to come up with something, I said I could do it, but I didn't have a clear idea of what I was going to do. It was for a black women's magazine. I was like, you know what? I think I'm going to have uh, characters speak directly to the reader. And that's what I did. I came up you know, and and it was to be, you know, where I'm coming from, um, what, where this particular person, character was coming from each time. Um, once I got uh, a newspaper interested in me um, and they wanted to go with it, I realized, you know, some of these characters, they keep coming up with the same situations or something similar that I wanted to talk about. And I'd go back to that same character. So I started repeating characters and then I whittled it down to the nine women. These these nine women, they're all friends. They talk about everything, uh, re- relationships, microaggressions, police brutality, voting, politics. Where did these come from in your mind? They came from me, basically. I mean, there were, there, there are certain aspects of me in all my characters. When I wanted to talk about s- social issues, um, I would use a you know, one of two characters. I'd either use um, Lakeisha, the one with the dreads, or uh, Monica, the one who's very fair and, you know, the long straight hair to talk about social issues. But, you know, if I wanted to talk about things that were just really superficial, I would probably use uh, Nicole. But they were all really part of me and parts of my friends that I could recognize. So they developed from myself and my friends, basically. Did your friends ever mind? Did your friends ever call you and go like, was that me? Or did... <laughs> Well, you know what? This is this was something I got away with because I was living in Brooklyn when I was um, working on where I'm coming from. And I wasn't in a paper in New York. You know, I was. <laughs> <laughs> so they had no idea that I could use something directly from what some, somebody said and I'd put it in there. So I guess when they read the book, they'll be like, hey, wait a minute. <laughs> Were you talking about me? No, I think it's fine. It's unlike any other comic um, I've seen, even now, even just looking back at the retrospective. Because, I mean, for people who haven't um, seen where I'm coming from, it's, it's worth mentioning that as opposed to your typical comic strip, the characters you're talking about, the, the nine women, um, which are versions of you and your friends, they don't have any bodies. They're just, <laughs> yes. they're just heads and, and hands. Yes. Talk to me about that. So – I like the the directness of having a talking head speaking directly to the to the reader, but um, I was also kind of sick of how women are are summed up with their body parts by their body parts. Um, often in comics, you know, women have these uh, 
superhuman, unrealistic body types, you know, or there's they're consumed with their body because they're fat, you know, whatever it is. So the idea not to not to include the body was encouraging readers to look at them in their face, talk to them. They've got minds in those heads. They've got thoughts, you know. So that's that's really where that came from. My understanding is when you first started sending this out, like you 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 knew that you didn't you knew from your dad, I guess, that you didn't just want to be published in one magazine or one newspaper, that it was important uh, to be part of a syndicate, you know, to be part yeah, of I knew from my paycheck. <laughs> <laughs> You can't live off one one newspaper. Yeah, so I mean, the more when you get more of these syndicates, that's 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 a that's a good life. But my understanding is that you got a lot of rejection off the top. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. I um I put together the press kit because I I knew the industry. My dad was a cartoonist. I knew how it worked. That syndicates send out press kits to newspapers, and I knew that maybe I should put together a press kit on my own. I was already published in one paper and send it to the syndicates. And um, and yes, I did. I got rejected by them all. What did they say Except, when they rejected you? Well, some gave me um, just a boilerplate rejection. Nope, not for us, you know. Yeah. And you knew it was just a, a form letter. But, um, you know, I got a really nice long rejection from uh, King Features. You know, they felt that. I needed to not have so many characters. I needed to consider having a wider cast, not just women. And it was all things that I did not want to do. So I didn't. And Universal was Universal Press Syndicate. Lee Salem, love him, um, miss him, um, was really my champion. Of course, you know, when you get somebody interested in, in you, people come back. Oh, wait a minute. Maybe she did have something. So, you know, I had I had some... Uh, people who had rejected me who wanted to reconsider it. But I knew I was going to go at Universal Press. I mean, that for, was clear. for good reason, right? Universal Press is, yeah. is yeah. Kathy and Garfield and Calvin and Hobbes and Ziggy. Ziggy and, and the far side. And yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, good that's that, that's the NHL. I mean, that's that's yeah. the NBA, right? For That's right. For, yeah. Um, we, and it also gets you this big... I mean, I, I guess this big distribution would be the word. Like, in the, you're all over the U.S., you're all over Canada, Jamaica, South Africa. So when you started to get response from people who had uh, read this, read the the strip, maybe who had never seen anything like the strip before, what what, what kind of response were you getting? Um, I got a lot of really positive responses. You know, women saying, "Hey, you 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 understand what I'm thinking? I was just thinking that. You know, or I'm cutting these out to share with other people because." They really liked it. And then I got, what is this person doing? She's, you know, I was accused of being anti-white and anti-male. And and I found that very often they didn't even read the strip just by virtue of seeing just black women on the page. Um, got a, got some kind of visceral response like, oh, no, we can't have that. Um, so those are those those were to be expected. My dad got similar letters when, you know, he did his thing 30 years before me. So that wasn't that wasn't a surprise. I heard that you wrote someone back one time. Oh yeah, I wrote a lot of people back. <laughs> but yes, but yeah, I did. Um, maybe you're referring to and uh, there was one time a guy wrote me and he said that I was putting men down, and I'm like, listen, when I talk about men, I, uh, it's usually a character. It's a man, uh, you know, not men in general. So if you see yourself in. <laughs> say, Maurice, <laughs> I'm like, I'm wondering, do you really have a problem with my strip? Or do you have a problem with your mirror? You know, mm. it's what, you know, what you, who you are. Because mm. 
I feel like I touched a nerve. Did I? <laughs> it, it must have been meaningful when you told me that you got the response from people who were like, uh, you know, um, I, uh, you understand what I'm thinking. I've never seen anyone understand what I'm thinking before in a comic strip. Yeah, that that was that's really rewarding. You're right. It's it's like, wow. You know, that was it, I was filling a void, and that was an. Uh, um, a confirmation that I was filling a void that was there because these people who wrote were were saying they didn't see themselves mm-hmm. on these on the pages, and they just confirmed it for me. Now that this um, retrospective is is coming out, there's going to be a lot of new readers of yeah. of your work. What, what, I how, hope so. Does that feel good? Yeah, it feels real good. Yeah, I'm like, I also had um. Um, uh, somebody tell me that their daughter, 13 years old, read the strip and said, wow, this is really, um, this is, this is good, mom. You know, this is something um, I like. So this is a 13 year old in 2023, seeing that um, my stuff kind of resonated with her. Does it feel like you're getting your roses here? Yeah. My husband's literally bought me a rose, you know, <laughs> to, to, <laughs> to make that point. Um so that, that's very that's very sweet. Yeah, I, I and I'm I'm just happy that people are are it, there's another there's another opportunity for another generation to take a look at what I was doing. You know, in in recent years, the internet has been resurrecting a lot of comic strips from your peers in newspaper syndication. You know, there's like all these memes about Garfield and and Kathy and and The Far Side and Ziggy. Would you like to see the same kind of thing for where I'm coming from? Sure, I wouldn't mind. I, I kind of think what I do now with more current events, they're basically memes, <laughs> you know, that's, um, but sure, if they see something that I did that was, you know, from years ago and um, put it on the internet, I, I would love that. But you, it's I, just more exposure, yeah. Right. I mean, you, you, I mean, you still update this thing if something strikes you, right? Absolutely. I do. You can't help it. You know, there's so many things going on in the news that you want to comment on. Well, I want to comment on. So I do it. Sometimes I write it up and, and don't end up writing it and posting it. But just getting it out of me is, is a good thing. <laughs> it's I mean, yes, it sounds therapeutic. And it's it's a really yeah. wonderful collection. And it was a great opportunity for me to get to know your work a little bit better. And I hope people listening to this can get to know it, too. Lovely to meet you, you by too. the way. Thanks for coming on and talking yeah. to us about it. Very nice meeting you. Thank you so much. Barbara Brandon Croft was the first black female cartoonist to be in mainstream newspaper syndication in North America. A retrospective of her work called Where I'm Coming From is out now. That's it for us today. Uh, thanks a lot for listening or streaming or downloading. Drop me a line uh, if you want to, by the way. You don't have to, but I'm not ordering you around. Uh, Q at cbc.ca is the best way to reach me. I'm also on Instagram. I'm, I'm trying, I don't know, trying to get off my phone a little bit. I say that all the time. I don't know, but I saw this thing the other day and it was like, I typed in how many hours a day I'm on my phone and like how old I am and like what my life expectancy is. A bit dark, right? And it said, if you keep on going at this rate, you'll spend 31 years of your life on the phone. 31 years of your life. I don't, I don't want to do that. So I'm, I'm, but anyway, listen, I am going to check it every now and then, and I'll probably be back to checking it all the time. So get in touch with me. Send me a DM. I'm at Tom Joe Power on Instagram. Tomorrow's episode is my conversation with the great jazz bassist Christian McBride. 
Jazz, that's a good antidote to screen time. We'll see you then. Later on. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.